An interesting fact about Idaho is that if you want to win on economic populist issues, if you, if you want to pass things like Medicaid expansion or increase funding for K-12 education, you simply cannot depend on the metropolitan majority because it's a rural state. So we've been forced by circumstance to try to do something different, to try to actually appeal to everyone everywhere across geography and especially in rural counties. This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. You just heard Luke Mayville, a lecturer of political philosophy at Boise State University's Honors College and the co-founder of grassroots movement Reclaim Idaho. In 2018, Idaho became one of the only predominantly rural states to approve Medicaid expansion in a statewide referendum, a feat that Mayville and his co-organizers achieved driving across the state and enlisting hundreds of local volunteers to persuade their neighbors that it was the right thing to do. On this episode, Luke talks with our associate editor, Matt Sittman, about that campaign and what it could mean for the future of the progressive movement in America. This is the Commonweal Podcast. So hi, Matt. It's good to have you here today. Thanks. It's great to be with you virtually, I suppose. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always virtually all the time now, it seems. So you got to talk with Luke Mayville, and it's a conversation I think that our listeners will be very excited to hear. So maybe you could just sort of set us up a little bit. Sure. One reason we wanted to talk to Luke is that we published a really wonderful article of his in our October issue as part of our election package. And it really was his story of the work he's done with an organization he co-founded, Reclaim Idaho, that was dedicated to getting Medicaid expansion on the ballot in Idaho and then actually winning that contest. So I want to say around 90,000 people in Idaho now have health care who didn't before. And so it was really important work that Luke did. And it really, he told an interesting story about how a progressive cause like that won in a very, very red state, including in places that Hillary Clinton might have lost by 30 points to Donald Trump in the 2016 election. This uh, Medicaid expansion that was on the ballot actually won in those places. So the article is about the work he did to, to make that happen and the work his team did to make that happen. And Luke is someone just that I find a fascinating figure. He's a good friend of mine. Actually, when I was received in the Catholic Church, he was my sponsor. One small detail, but he has a background in political theory. That's kind of how I first met him. He has a PhD from Yale and a, a book about John Adams and oligarchy in the United States. It's called John Adams and the Fear of American Oligarchy. And yet he has the common touch to do this sort of grassroots work. For further background, one thing we didn't get to in the conversation, but that might be useful for listeners, is that the whole reason Medicaid expansion was something they had to fight for, to, to put on a ballot and then win is because when Obamacare was passed in 2010, a big part of it was Medicaid expansion, meaning it would cover individuals who made up to 138% of the federal poverty line. And so this was going to cover possibly millions of people more in the United States who were kind of falling through the cracks of our healthcare system. But when the Supreme Court ruled on Obamacare in 2012, they made the Medicaid expansion part optional. So even though the federal government was covering the vast majority of that funding, this was essentially a giveaway to states. I mean, they barely had to do anything. A number of red states opted out of it. So that's why you see these movements in places like Maine and I think most recently Missouri, along with Idaho, where Luke's story takes place. That's why they had to actually fight to get Medicaid expansion in those states. 
Well, great. It's a great piece in the magazine, and I'm uh, looking forward to this interview. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Luke Mayville, welcome to the Commonwealth Podcast. It's so good to be here with you, Matt. Your article was about the success of the Reclaim Idaho campaign, which is about Medicaid expansion in the state. One of the frameworks for the piece was how progressives can win in rural America. And I just wondered if you could start by saying how the final result of the Medicaid expansion being on the ballot, how that differed from the experiences of other states that have expanded Medicaid and how that happened. But maybe set the stage to start with just kind of what was different about the campaign you ran. Well, what motivated me to write the piece was noticing that there was a real difference and that our Idaho campaign was an outlier. There have now been, I believe, seven states that have put Medicaid expansion directly on the ballot. All of them pretty much either red or at the very least, you know, purple leaning, leaning red states. But in just in every single state, other than the state of Maine is a little complicated. It's the very first one that went on the ballot. But Maine is kind of leaning more and more progressive these days, actually. But other than the state of Maine, the Medicaid expansion vote was very lopsided towards urban and suburban communities. So in state after state, what you've seen, and whether it was Missouri or Oklahoma this past summer or before that, Nebraska, Utah, other states, you see something like one out of 10 counties voting for it. You know, it varies somewhat, but it's about, it's, it's something like that ratio. And it's, and it's just those urban and suburban counties. And what they've done is they drive up the vote dramatically in those counties. And even though they lose by quite a lot, typically in the rural counties, that urban suburban, that metropolitan vote puts them over the top. I was frustrated reading, you know, the commentary from various pundits and things this summer when they were observing some of these votes. And they were basically saying, you know, clearly Medicaid expansion just doesn't win in rural counties and in rural America, because I knew that that was not the case in Idaho. Idaho, where we organized, was really an outlier. Here in Idaho, 35 out of 44 counties voted for Medicaid expansion. And that included the five most rural counties in the state. They voted for it pretty overwhelmingly. So that was what inspired the piece to then say, okay, I have this firsthand experience of this real outlier where these rural voters are really voting for this economic populism in the form of expanding a government-sponsored health insurance program in a deep red state. That's happening. That happened here. I was part of it. I, I witnessed it. Why did it happen here? But it didn't happen elsewhere in the, to the same degree. Right, right. You make the point in your piece that basically over the course of Obama's presidency during those eight years and that general period of time, Democrats just their ability to connect with rural voters just kind of fell off drastically. <laughs> and those voters typically turned fairly Toward the Republican Party, it kind of turned right. Maybe they were voters that in previous generations might have voted more for Democrats. And Reclaim Idaho won in places where, uh, you point out, Hillary Clinton might have lost by 30 points. Right. In counties, I should say, where Hillary lost you know, by huge margins. But your Medicaid expansion won. And there's a lot of layers to that, I suppose. Uh, because it was a referendum, because it was on the ballot, you, know, you had to 
get signatures and you then once that was accomplished, you had to actually win the win the vote. But I wondered, without going to all those details, what was your strategy? Because that's one of the major features of your Article 2, which is that you didn't handle this the way, say, consultants might have told you to handle it. So what was your strategy? Uh, if Idaho was this outlier, what did your organization do to kind of make that happen? The banner, the, the bumper sticker version, it was part of the title of the Commonweal article, Do Something Big. And what that's referring to is we went out into communities, we organized, and we asked ordinary people who didn't really have all that much political experience oftentimes, we asked them to take on real leadership. And I would say that was the key difference in our strategy from the traditional strategy or, or strategies that are often carried out by progressives in progressive politics. We really went out and we didn't just treat ordinary people as voters. We treated them as active participants in the campaign. So, you know, the, the kind of the marquee feature of our campaign was we had this bright green camper with the slogan Medicaid for Idaho across the side of it. We drove that into all of these rural counties and we held public events. Sometimes it would be, you know, 50 people. Sometimes it'd be 10 people. But you'd meet people face to face and then you'd organize such that when we then drove out of town, some of those people committed to really leading the effort in their community. So that's what it was all about. That's what distinguished our campaign, I would say, is that we we challenged people in all of these counties to really step up and, and do something big, take on real leadership, commit to the victory themselves. Mm -hmm. And Luke, one of the questions I had about that was, we don't need to trash consultants too much, but you described one person you spoke to who said, well, you have to take a poll, you have to raise money to get a poll out into the field. And then if it shows that there's a possibility you could win, then you can use that to raise further money, which seems like a kind of top down kind of outside money strategy. But when you say you empowered local people, what did that mean practically? When you drove out of the town after having a meeting and a bunch of these people committed to working for the campaign, what practically did that mean in the town where they live? What responsibilities did they take on? What it usually meant is that they committed, they, you know, through the organizing meeting, they would learn the ins and outs of the ballot initiative process and what they needed to do in their community when it came to collecting signatures. And then at least one person, sometimes two, would actually commit to being the leader for their county, which basically meant that they were going to be the point person for their local team. So what we wanted to have before we left a place and what we, what we wanted to establish in as many counties as possible, at least one person who's going to take responsibility and we call them the county leader. And then we would get as many people as possible to commit to helping them carry out that responsibility to be an active member of that team. That was so critical to build. I mean, I remember at one point we had a, a poster up when we were first strategizing the campaign where we one way that we spelled out our mission was just the words build teams, just go out and build these local teams. That was critical, not just for winning this campaign, but part of the reason why I'm so committed to it is that that's what 
you really need to do in order to build power for the long term. You have to you have to get people forming relationships, meeting each other, learning how to work together on political things, learning how to coordinate with one another, figuring out one another's strengths. But yeah, in the short term, it meant, <laughs> okay, we've been challenged to collect 500 signatures in the next two months. How are we going to do that? And they had to come together and you know formulate their own local strategy for doing that. Yeah. So you had these local teams fanning out, gathering the signatures. And then once it was actually on the ballot, what did they do then? In your article, you mentioned, you know, it would be local people going on local television or radio, writing letters to the editor of local newspapers. What difference did that make? I mean, did you think it mattered not just, I mean, once it was on the ballot, once you were advocating for it, once people knew that they would have a chance to vote for this, Mm -hmm. how did the kind of local strategy pay off? Do you think it made a difference that it was ordinary people talking about how this mattered to their lives? I guess, I suppose that sounds like a leading question, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, my, my hunch is that probably helped. No, but it's important. It's, it's important to reiterate that in a word, it was all about persuasion. And it's important to just, even though it sometimes seems obvious, face-to-face persuasion, or at the very least, persuasion carried out by local members of your own community. It's so important in politics. You know, I, I've talked to people in Idaho who still remember back in the old days when there was a, a much more powerful Democratic Party that was spread out all across the state. And one thing I've heard a number of times is that the one thing that used to happen back then that isn't really the case anymore is there were really active local members of the party who were promoting the, the party's agenda. Whereas these days, all too often, you know, the, the statewide candidate will come through and they'll, they'll have their event or they'll go and they'll go talk to local business leaders or maybe go door to door. And then they leave town and that's it. That gives you something like a two day long campaign in that town, at least when it comes face to face. But when you get local people doing persuasion, that can be a three-month-long campaign of persuasion. And that's precisely what we had with Medicaid expansion. There were people who were cultivating skills of persuasion. They were learning how to write compellingly about policy issues. They were, some of them were going on the radio. They were, you know, they were writing letters to the editor. They were learning how to go door-to-door, how to use the various technologies that we have now for doing all of that. And in the absence of that, and this is a real theme of my piece and of the experience is that in the absence of that, it's it's mostly just all about TV ads. And these days, more and more, it's social media, digital ads. That just pales in comparison to the experience of actually having someone who you know, attempt to persuade you. It's an entirely different thing. Yeah. Are there any stories you have, whether something that's you experienced or that people who were involved in the campaign experience that they told you, any sort of revelatory conversations where, I mean, I know just in my own family, sometimes it's very strange that, say, something like Social Security is not coded as a government program that helps people because it's sort of, well, white people get it, (laughs) you know? Like Like there's something mentally that doesn't connect where you realize that actually your life is being helped by various government programs. And it's very easy to code new programs as just, you know, welfare or government largesse. And people don't always realize the direct ways it could 
a certain program could help them in their own lives. And so I just wondered if that experience of trying to persuade people, what, if anything that really struck you as like an aha moment where people started to realize what actually Medicaid expansion would mean for them? Well, one experience that we had over and over again with these core team members who joined the campaign is that they would say things like, wow, I never understood that there were so many other people in this community who agree with me. And that was a fundamental, I noticed that when I first got involved and started doing the organizing, I would meet, I would, you know, have a dinner with someone and they would talk about how they knew for a fact that it was only them and a handful of others who thought something like Medicaid expansion was important. You know, every, everyone else in their community was against it. And I would just try to nudge them because I was so taken by the polling from all around the country that said even the majority of Republicans nationwide believe that Medicaid is a good program in the vast majority of people of all parties. So I would be I would try to nudge people and say, oh, are you really sure of that? that you know, have, I think there's probably some more people in this community who who agree with you. But then you bring together these meetings and all of a sudden people start showing up. Maybe even they knew each other a little bit beforehand, but they didn't know that all of these people agreed with them. And then that emboldens them to start speaking publicly about the issue. And then once they go out and speak publicly, they are then often able to tell personal stories of how Medicaid expansion would allow, would enable someone in their family or in their community to get healthcare for the first time. And that would just be so much more compelling. And in Idaho, there's a story in every county, and we certainly witnessed this, of someone either suffering some tragic loss or, you know, in terms of going deeply, falling deeply into debt or preventable death. There were stories of this across the state. So, and I think part of what we were able to do through local organizing was just bring those stories to life and then have local people who knew those who had suffered personally tell those stories. In some cases, I mean, it was the most effective thing, you know, you can ever achieve as an organizer is when you get the people who have suffered themselves to tell their own stories. In some cases, we were able to do that. And then that's, that is, that wins. It's very hard to not think about an issue like Medicaid expansion different, no matter what your ideological leanings are. If you're approached by someone whose life would be fundamentally changed by the program and they face-to-face tell you their story. So that, I think that's the, we were able to accomplish. Like as I'm speaking, I'm, I'm recalling, there's a woman named Amy Pratt who unfortunately passed away about six months after the victory, she was diagnosed with cancer and then passed. But she became something of an icon in our campaign. She was a school bus driver in the very conservative Bonneville County. She lived in Idaho Falls. And she was a school bus driver five days a week. And then on the weekends, she would door knock every single weekend. She knocked over a thousand doors and well over a thousand doors because she collected over a thousand signatures. And she had personally been in the Medicaid, the so-called Medicaid gap before she got her job as a school bus driver. So she had suffered for years 
without healthcare. And she then took up this cause. She came to one of our public meetings when we drove through town on our green camper, you know, Medicaid tour. She came out, met us for the first time, and then she left with a clipboard and <laughs> ready to go out. And, and she just threw everything she had into it. And I'm certain that she persuaded hundreds of people to vote for it at the very, le- at the very least. Because I, wa- I would go door to door with her and I watched how compelling it was to have someone with that firsthand experience. And when, when it came time for the vote, her conservative county, which, you know, for example, her, her district, I don't think has elected a, a Democrat in decades. It passed, Medicaid expansion passed in her district with 65% of the vote. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Wow. I mean, the power of those stories is really something. And the, the kind of bottom-up grassroots effort you're describing just is, it really is, I think, displays the best of us as a country. And I just maybe had one final question for you. We don't need to descend into rank punditry here, but one of the things I appreciated about your piece is that you did not make grand claims at the end of it. You know, that if Democrats did this, they would suddenly win rural voters or start winning red states. You don't you don't make claims that you can't really back up. But I I did nevertheless wonder that this is seems like some kind of proof of concept that there are voters who can be moved, at least on specific issues. And I just wondered if you had any lessons that might be broader that, that you could share with us. Again, keeping in mind that they might not be catch-all solutions to everything, uh, all of our country's woes and the woes of the Democratic Party. Nevertheless, what might others learn from this experience that you had? Well, I think that there is a real pitfall in the progressive politics of our time that we would all do best to avoid. But it's a, it's a really attractive mistake that we can make of thinking that we are going to win with a metropolitan majority. It's a very tempting mistake because if you look back at the 2018 election, that's why so many progressive causes, in large part, were winning, including you know, the Democratic Party and the House of Representatives, they were winning these, what I heard called Panera districts, like <laughs> right, places, right. The places in the country that have a Panera bread shop, you know, meaning that they're developing into these relatively prosperous suburban communities and what Rahm Emanuel called the metropolitan, the new metropolitan majority of, of the Democratic Party. An interesting fact about Idaho is that if you want to win on you know economic populist issues if you, if you want to pass things like medicaid expansion or increase funding for k12 education you simply cannot re- depend on the metropolitan majority because it's a rural state so we've been forced by circumstance to try to do something different to try to actually appeal to try to appeal to everyone everywhere across geography and especially in rural counties. And the only way to do that is to really think seriously about how to make our campaigns more democratic and how to how to empower more people, how to bring more people into the process. I've been more and more influenced by some political science research that I came across a number of years ago, especially the book by Theda Scotchpaul called Diminished Democracy, and I believe the the subtitle is 
from membership to management. And a really fascinating theory is that in American civic life in general, but I think she would also say, you know, in progressive politics, we've moved towards a very managerial model of campaigns that is overwhelmingly about fundraising and then steering funds towards mass communications. And insofar as people are really active in the campaign, it's a central staff. And then and then insofar as a much larger pe- uh, number of people are involved in the campaign, it's simply as voters. So it's this core central staff, usually in an urban community, that's doing the real political work. And then they're asking very little of everyone else. And that's one way to sum up, I think, what we've been experimenting with. What if you go out and you ask a lot more of ordinary people? And and not of everyone, because there's never going to be, I don't, you know, or at least there's, there's never been, and as far as I know, in modern, the history of modern democracies, a campaign that engages every single citizen, right? But what if we did, I mean, but, you know, certainly we can do a lot more to engage a much larger number of people in the political process and ask a whole lot more of them. And that's what I think I would like to urge a lot more people to think seriously about. Not just, you know, how do we come up with the right message and the right policies, but what is our theory of organizing? How are we going to find people who are spread out everywhere who are actually yearning to be involved in these kinds of campaigns? How do we find them? And then how do we ask them to do something big and important for their communities? I think those are questions that are as central as any other for for the success of you know progressive politics in this country. Yeah, well, you've persuaded me. <laughs> uh, I think that's a really beautiful message to end on. And uh, it's really, again, an inspiring one too, to to just ask people to do big things, as your article says, and ask them to, to dream. And I think these days, just convincing people that something better is possible is such a such an important part of the task. And I'm so glad for the work you've done in Idaho and to improve people's lives. It's really a remarkable thing that's happened there. And uh, I really appreciate you spending the time telling us a little bit about it. Well, thank you so much, Matt. We've got 90,000 plus Idahoans now covered by the program. And we've got our work cut out for us now in in making sure that our legislature doesn't dismantle it. (laughs) So so maybe we'll have a chance to talk again before long about that process. But, But thank you so much for having me on. Sounds great. Thank you, Luke. Do Something Big, How Progressives Win in Rural America by Luke Mayville appears in our October issue and is available on our website. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. 